three, I've focused on uh, some of the particular subjects that we deal with in our life. Uh, uh, one week was on sex, romance, singleness, and marriage all in one week. It only took three hours to finish that one. Uh, then we, we did uh, last week on money, on hope and money. And today I want to do something that, at least for me, seems incredibly ambitious, but I want to talk about hope and the issues of race, issues of differences, cultural differences. How do we, in a sense, use the hope that we have to be able to get along with and to actually have community with people who are different from us? And um, I got a little ring there. We're working on it? Okay. I, I like my voice until it echoes. But uh, So what we've been talking about and why this is important is because the idea of Christian hope is radically different from any other kind of hope. And as a matter of fact, biblical hope, the word even is different than the word that we use for hope in English. In English... We tend to use the word hope to denote some kind of uncertainty. Uh, When we talk about hope, we're always talking about the future. And when English, when we say, I hope that something will happen, or I hope this, or I hope that, we're actually reflecting the uncertainty about the future. And then hope expresses a positive outcome that we hope will happen but we're not certain will happen. And so in the Bible, the idea of hope is actually a certainty. And it gives us, throughout the scriptures, it gives us things about the future which it speaks of as absolutely certain so that as you begin to hope biblically, you begin to pull the certainty of the future into the uncertainty of the present. And then the scriptures are very, very clear, and we've looked at this in the early days that we looked at hope, is that what the Bible has to say about heaven is such a certainty. Uh, Jesus, even as he's preparing his disciples for his death on the cross and then his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, he tells them to not be afraid. He says, He says he's going to a place, he's preparing a place for them, and in that place there'll be a lot of room or there'll be many mansions for them. There is a certainty, and so the Bible teaches not a kind of pie-in-the-sky sort of heaven, but actually a very material and a very personal heaven, a heaven that will correspond to you, to all that you've lost, all that you have sacrificed, As a matter of fact, Jesus makes this promise that whatever you've given up in this life, whatever you've lost in this life, he will return to you up to a hundred times what you have lost. You will experience it in this world, but it says you will also experience it in the world to come. So if you have a biblical hope and you begin to live in the power of that biblical hope, in other words, you're always going to have uncertainty in your life. There's never going to be an opportunity that you're going to go through and you're going to know everything that's going on, you're going to know everything that's going to happen. 
There will always be uncertainty. But what will determine your attitude and your behavior in the midst of that uncertainty is how well you hold on to the certainties. Faith, in a, in a way, faith is what we hold on to now that gives us hope for the future. And many times people have said to me, I have a great faith, but I have no hope. And I'm always like, if you had a great faith, you would also have a great hope. Faith is, is the means by which you hold on for the future. It's the means by which you face the present. Faith is the means by which you overcome your past. And then the scriptures are really clear, and it says that these three things are connected to each other, faith, hope, and love. They're always connected. In many ways, a person who knows the greatness of the love of God and has experienced the greatness of the love of Christ in their life and the the experience of the Holy Spirit pouring that love out, they begin to be a person of faith because faith doesn't create reality, it embraces that reality. You know, when you look at the cross as a person of faith, you look at the cross and you see the great love that God has for you, you don't create that love, you are embracing that He loves you that much. Your faith holds on to that. It becomes the hand by which you receive the gift. Your faith becomes that which clings to and holds to the love that God the Father has for you. Even if you've been rejected by everybody else, your family, your friends, everyone else could leave you, but your faith could hold on to the fact that that love that the Father has for you, that He's expressed in His Son, and that is now being poured out by the Holy Spirit, that that's what you value. And when you grab hold of that, then you have a hope that begins to come from that. The hope begins to be produced because you say, if I am that loved and I am holding on to that love that tightly and that powerfully, then the future must be good for me. Because if he loved me this much in the past, how much more will he love me in the future? And so faith takes uh, all of the things that are certain in the Scripture, all the certainties of the future, and begins to hold on to them in the present. So many people have very little hope because they want to trust in uncertainties. Outcomes are not certain. No matter how much you try, you can try to make your kids all, you know, perfect kids and do everything you think and they can still screw up. You can try to train your husband for 30 years. There's just this gene in men that's resistant to training. You know, and you just, he still throws his socks on the floor, you know, and he still does whatever you've taught him not to do, even with the kind of, you know, torture that you've given to him called nagging over the years. <laughs> Doesn't work because the outcomes are uncertain. And if you put your hope in outcomes that are uncertain, you're going to be disappointed. And you're going to be frustrated, angry, and depressed. But if you begin to say, what is certain? What can I hold on to with all of my all of my being, and that thing is certain, then you will not be disappointed. God is not obligated to your expectations. He's obligated to his word. He's not obligated to what you think he should do. He's obligated to what he has said he will do. So many of us have the problem is we want him to be obligated to what we feel or what we think the way should be. That would make us God and him our servant tends to not work that way. So as we look at this together, we're going to look at 
kind of this question together that comes up in the scriptures quite often because the, the, the gospel is intended for every race. It's intended for every language. It's intended for every people group because heaven will be a place that represents every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so the gospel is for all. It was, it, it's uh, kind of obvious in a sense in John 3.16 when it says, for God so loved the world. Well, let's read a little bit together in Romans where we see that love, God loves the world, but the world doesn't always love each other. So let's read this together. You read it out loud with me. I love it when you read out loud because I know you paid a lot for that education. So, All right, so let's read together. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt... You are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to, for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, we're going to go over this passage. We're going to talk about what the problem situation is. But I just want you to remember this last part and why I brought this. This is parts of 14 
of Romans and then part of 15, the first part of 15. Notice in verse 5 where it says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. These are people of different races. These are people of different cultures, people who came from different religious traditions. The goal of the Holy Spirit in writing the letter to Paul is that whatever background you come from, that you would be in the same mind, that you would have a unity of spirit with those who come from a completely different background than you do. That we would be able to exist together, being different, not having to be uniform, but having a unity. The other thing that he says is that the power to do this, and we'll look at this more fully as we go along, but the power to do this is hope. It is not because we are where we need to be. It's because we know where we're going. It's because we know what our future is. This is one of the reasons why many of us cannot stand to be in conflict is because conflict makes us think that relationships are over. When we disagree or when we actually reveal ourselves and we feel like we're making ourselves vulnerable or weak to one another, we are afraid of what you will do with this. So many of us hide behind shields or veils or masks or whatever it is so that we can be what you want us to be or you can be what you think I want you to be. And one of the worst things in the church in, in the U.S. that I've ever seen is that everybody tries to put on a certain mask when they come to church. Even though they fought all the way in the car. Even though they screamed and yelled at their little precious children. Even though, you know, the, the all day Saturday, there were problems and issues. And then we put on our church mask, you know, and we put on our, you know, our face and we come. And for the most part, in most of America, we all are one culture in each church. The church itself is a single culture on a Sunday morning. They call the 11 o'clock hour the most segregated hour in America. Well, heaven's not going to be like that. And we are called in our story, in the story that you're writing for your life, and that God is writing for your life. He's calling you to be something different. He's calling me. He's calling us as a church. Now, does it get messy? Yeah, it gets messy because it's a lot easier to deal with the fake people who come in and everything's fine than to deal with the reality that everything's not fine. Every single person sitting next to you has as many problems as you do. Some of them worse. Every single one of them needs friendship, needs acceptance, needs love, just like you do. They need to believe that there's a place that they're safe, that their confidences are, are secure. They need to know that there's a community that they belong to. And so as we look at this, it says, this is the call of God on our life, is that those of us who are very different, who come from very different places, should come together. And in coming together, we come together with hope. Um, as we talk about this situation, though, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14, it lays out what the issue is. There were, there's a, there's a case 
that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, there was a, a situation where certain foods were declared to be clean. In other words, not only was there a health issue with those foods, but there was a moral issue. And so if you ate these foods, you were eating an unclean food or a forbidden food. And by doing so, you did not only risk, you know, in the case of like pork, you might risk the fact that it was not cooked enough, and that creates some interesting problems. But you were also risking a kind of a damnation. You were morally putting yourself in jeopardy by eating that which was unclean, you yourself became unclean. This is, this is the heart of the law. The law is not about what will make you clean. It's actually about what will make you unclean. And so by eating something that was forbidden, you then were under judgment by the law. And this was a very powerful training that came upon those who were raised in the Jewish religion. That that which was unclean, you touched or ate, made you unclean. Well, in the, the ancient Roman world, it was very hard to find kosher food. You know, there weren't delis everywhere, you know, where you could have kosher, kosher goods or shop rights with their own, you know, with their own section that you could, you could make sure that these places had been blessed by the rabbi. And so it was very difficult for a, a, an observant Jewish person to find a way to live and eat meat. Uh, because most of the meat was dedicated to a god before it was ever offered for sale. There was some kind of a blessing over the, the food uh, that was devoting it to some deity. And so the, for the, uh, a typical Jewish person, this became a very, very difficult, difficult situation. And so the only remedy for it was often that you just you abstained from meat. You abstained from it not because you thought it was unhealthy or because you were a vegetarian, but you abstained from it because you would violate your own moral conscience by eating it. Well, once these different groups of people were brought into Christ, and once they were given faith in Christ, well, this, this stigma or this issue continued. Now, there were, there were a couple of reasons why um, uh, in the Old Testament, particularly, that, uh, that the meat was forbidden as we look at the scriptures, and it, it explains at least two reasons that are pretty interesting. One is that by having strict dietary regulations, there was a, a, an ability to maintain the identity of the Jewish people. By having something so unique in the way that they ate, and the way that they dedicated even their food to God, it maintained a very religious and, and moral identity. The other thing was this, is it kept the people conscious of the fact that you just don't enter into the presence of a holy God without some kind of purification of yourself. And so by making the food, in a sense, a moral issue instead of just a health issue, you, you, you showed that there's this separation between the profane and the sacred. And so that as you come, you... Uh, and I, as if we learn from this a bit, as we come into the presence of God, we're not coming into the presence of a familiar. 
uh, you know, the idea that familiarity breeds contempt. We're coming into the presence. Every time that we come into the presence of God, there is this uniqueness to him. There is this specialness. There is this sacredness. So it wasn't like these were just these arbitrary rules, and that it wasn't as if they weren't essential and important. But yet, what, what has happened, and what Paul makes clear, and Jesus makes clear, and the book of Acts makes clear, is that eating or not eating the meat does not cleanse you. You're already unclean. You could go eat kosher for the rest of your life and you're still unclean. You're a porker. (laughs) Okay, it won't change anything. It'll be religious. It'll make you feel more moral, but it won't change the fact that you're unclean. As a matter of fact, the only thing that really takes away the uncleanness of the stains of your life is Jesus himself. So Jesus is the cleansing factor, Jesus' blood. And, and it may seem strange if you're not used to this kind of language, but for a lot of us, where we've come to understand this, this picture, that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us of all unrighteousness. It's not our activities. It's not what we don't eat or what we do eat. It's not whether you're a vegetarian or a carnivore or whatever you might be. It, it, it is whether or not have you come under the cleansing of the Lord Jesus under his name and under his blood, under his sacrifice, because no one is clean just by what they eat. And so Christ is the one who has fulfilled this, the, this law. And, but as this became known to many of them, they began to get a freedom. And they began to operate in a freedom. And they said, look, we can eat any of this meat because it's not going to make us clean or unclean. You know, it doesn't matter. And others were like, no, no, you, you'll ruin everything. You know, you'll, you'll destroy everything. You'll corrupt everything if you touch this meat. And so there were those in Rome who, some of them got the fullness of the implications of the gospel. This meat's not going to hurt me. And there are others that were like, oh, no, no, you're, you're destroying your, clean, your cleanness. You're making yourself unclean by this. And so this dispute arose between the two. Now these were, you have to understand, these were both well-intentioned people. But Paul makes it really clear that the weaker ones are the ones who say we can't eat it. This is the crazy thing. Sometimes you'll hear a message on this and they'll be supportive of the weak position. Why is that? Because they themselves do not understand the implications of the gospel. Jesus makes me clean, not the food I eat, not the drink I drink. Jesus makes me clean. If he doesn't make me clean, I'm not going to be clean. And so Paul says, uh, we're at liberty in these things. We have freedom in these things. And so here's the problem. is You have well-intentioned people who disagree Some of them are creating unnecessary regulations because if you've noticed, we haven't continued the kosher regulations from the Old Testament because Jesus has said to us, he has cleansed us, that they were a prefiguring of what he would do in our lives. There's a group there that he calls strong. Now, why do I bring this passage? Well, one is uh, um, I'm really being informed in this by some work by a guy by the name of Tim Keller. And it was incredibly helpful for me to finally see this in the way that he puts it forth. So I'm going to share it with you because it's really impacted me. 
There's parallel passages here in two different towns. One takes place in Rome. That's the one we just read about. And there's one that takes place in Corinth. Same issue, same problem, except that if you carefully study it, different racial groups, different cultural groups reacted differently to each of these situations. In Corinth, this whole uh, you know, situation plays out, and the, the people that ex- he called weak in Corinth were the Greeks. And as a matter of fact, the Jewish Christians were the strong ones. He calls them strong in Corinth. So for some reason, when the Greek Christians left paganism and they left this idolatry, they would get very upset if they saw people eating the meat that had been sacrificed or given or devoted to the idols. And their, their kind of superstitious fear came out and they were like, we're afraid of those gods, or we're afraid of this, so we can't eat that. Where the Jewish Christians went, those gods are nothing. We're going to eat the meat. It's cheap. It's a lot less expensive. You know, it's kind of like discount it because it went through the idol first. And so it was like big lots or something like that, you know. And so they were like, we get a deal on the meat. It's good meat. You know, nothing's going on there. Nothing's going to happen to us. And so they were just, they, you know, possibly because... You know, to them, they had such a freedom about this. They had come out of all the regulations. They had come out of all the, the law and all this morality, and they felt a freedom. And so they, they said, hey, we're, we're going to save some money. This will be good for us. And so they were eating this meat that had been devoted to these different idols. But the Greeks were freaking out over it. All right, so it's important that you understand that in Corinth, a completely different group is strong, and another group is weak. Go to Rome, the, 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 you know, the Gentile Christians there, they're in freedom. The Gentile Christians are saying, hey, the, that, that stuff was dedicated to a God. Those are no gods. There's no issue here. Let's eat the meat. But in Rome, the Jewish Christians were still tied to a legalistic understanding They're still struggling with leaving behind their religious, uh, superstitious fears. And so they're they're wrestling with this this issue, and they're coming down by saying, no, you're not a a real Christian if you eat this meat. Only real Christians are those who abstain from this meat. You'll sacrifice, and it doesn't matter how much it costs or whatever the deal is, you're going to abstain from the meat, and we're all going to eat vegetables. And they began to make it a spiritual issue. Now, what do we take away from this? Are you tracking with me so far? Because you have to think about this a little bit. Same issue, but in one city, one culture is weak. In another city, they're strong. Same issue. You know, one culture is, is dumb and one is wise. Put them in another city, it flips around. Well, interesting. One of the things that this is saying is that racial and cultural differences have a big impact on the way we look at spiritual matters. You know, it is a a very powerful thing what you were taught before you ever came to Christ. It's a very powerful thing of how you were taught when you came to Christ. It's a powerful thing 
uh, in, your, in your framework and in my framework, our culture is always speaking to us. Always speaking to us. Whether you come from a subculture or a, or a main culture, whatever it is, it's always speaking to you. You're always measuring things theologically, biblically, spiritually through your culture. Now, one of the things that fascinated me was uh, uh, Keller was talking about this African-American guy in the city that he's friends with, and then he came to Keller and he said this. He said, white people don't seem to think they even have a culture. And uh, he said, what, and Keller looked at him and said, what do you mean? And the, the African-American guy said, your question proves my point. I mean, if you think about this in a way, for many of us who come from what has been the dominant culture in America, we just tend to think our way is the right way. It's not a way, it's the way. And so a lot of times what happens is if you're from a different culture, it is almost, it, it, it's almost uh, impossible to speak in to what people believe in the dominant culture think is absolutely right, and there's no other way. There's no other way to think about this. For example, I'll give you a couple examples. One is I grew up, I grew up trained in what I would absolutely call Western European theological tradition. Um, and, and it's really an interesting, if you, if you had grown up the way I did with very reformed, very Calvinistic, we have absolutely every category thought through. We have answers for every single category. And if your answers don't agree with our answers, you're an idiot. Although we say it nicer than that. But it was a theological elitism that says Western, reformed, European Christians absolutely know everything. And anyone who disagrees with that knows nothing. Now, if you think about it and think through that, doesn't that sound elitist and arrogant? Some of you are going, yeah. Some of you are going, what's wrong with that? Well, if you don't know that you have a culture and you just believe whatever you think is right, then you will not allow anyone else to speak into the way you think or into the way you process things. And so it becomes very limited. Let me, let me give you a, an, uh, just an example of culture clash that we've experienced as we minister around the world. I, I love to go to Africa. One of my most exciting things that, that I've ever done in my life. It's one of the most difficult things, but it's one of the most exciting things. Now, I have been to Latin America a good bit, so I, I, I understand somewhat the idea of time being different in one culture from another. But I had never experienced anything quite like the, the philosophy of time in Africa. So we, get, you know, we go to Africa, we're going to do the College of Prayer, and, and it's supposed to start at 9 a.m. Now, I, I'm, I'm prepared that 9 a.m. doesn't mean 9 a.m. That 9 a.m. is the starting point for thinking about what you might do that day. Okay, so I'm, I'm prepared for it, but I tell my team, we have about 13 people, uh, 16 one time, I tell my team, you know, we all got to be ready because just in case something happens at 9, we have to be ready. But just be prepared that once you're ready, 
that it's not going to happen until hours later. But then when it's time to go, it's going to be like you should have been there already. So we get there, and that, it happens pretty much as I lay it out, except that it's hours and hours. It's like after lunch, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, whatever it is. And I'm asking, I'm like, what's going on? Because it's very hard to plan, you eat your lunch, all these different things. It's very hard to, you know, orchestrate with 16 people. And I'm, I asked them, I said, what, you know, what is, what is going on here? They said, well, there's not enough people there yet. We're waiting till there's enough people. And I said, well, how many are there? They said, like, two or three hundred are there. I said, I'd be more than happy to go talk to the two or three hundred. I mean, I have no issue with that. No, they said. Can't do that. So I, I probe it a little bit more. We go hours later. This happens every year I go. And what their sentiment, their feeling is so different. I'm thinking pragmatically. Okay, there's hundreds of people there. I've got a team. I'm ready to teach. I'm ready to do whatever. Let's just, let's get it going. You know, I'm thinking organizationally, we only have this one day. I want to get the most out of that one day possible. I'm thinking through all of these things. You know what they're thinking of? They're thinking, our speaker, me, has come all the way from the United States. We do not want to embarrass him with only 200 people. We want there to be the respect so we're going to wait till there's 500 because that would show respect. Would you have ever thought of that? And, and, I, and a million, some of you may be. I guess, few of you show me that kind of respect anyway. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but the idea, and I'm sitting there going, that's an amazing thought. Can you imagine being so concerned to love people and respect people in such a way that you would be willing to be uncomfortable even for hours, so that you could make sure that you showed them the proper amount of respect. That just opened my eyes. Am I making sense to you? It opened my eyes. I'm sitting there going, I have always looked at things through one lens. And the one lens is this. And some of you are the same way. If you say 9 o'clock, <laughs> of course, this is New York. None of you do that. But there are many of us, right? Don't we say, if you say 9 o'clock, then it becomes a commitment, right? You've made a promise. So then if somebody shows up at 9.20, you say, you don't respect. You're not, you know, you're not respectful. You're not punctual. I actually had an argument with somebody one time, and they said, it's ungodly. It is ungodly. If someone is late, they are godless. I said, you're anal. You know, but, but think about it. that person who said they're godless, are they thinking anything about different cultures? Are they thinking anything about any philosophy? And of course, this was a white person. And they're thinking, my culture is the culture. My way is the way. What happens in a church or a community and a family when any of us begin to say, there's only this one way? Well, then it's my way or the highway. <laughs> you, you get where I'm going here? You, you've got to track this. This is pretty good stuff if you'll think through it. So, I mean, just to kind of recap that a bit, what it's saying is 
our racial cultural differences in some situations can make us stronger, and then in other situations, those same differences can make us weaker or make us dumb or blind or unaware. In many ways, we have to come to a place, whether, whatever culture you come from, we have to come from a place that we begin to see that from our position, we limit ourselves to see the fullness of the glory of God. I have a greater sense of the glory of God because I've been in Africa and because I've begun to see things from my African brothers and sisters' point of view, and it has expanded me into understanding God in a better way. Let me, let me explain what I mean by this. C.S. Lewis makes this clear in his book called The Four Loves. He talks about these two other friends of his. They were three best friends. Uh, one of these guys is J.R.R. Tolkien. He calls him Ronnie. And the other is Charles Williams, another great writer. So the three of them are great friends. They get old together, and Charles dies. He says in his book, he said, well, he thought he would actually have more of Ronnie, J.R.R. Tolkien, because now he's not sharing him with someone else. But he realized that after a period of time, he had less of Ronnie than he had before. Why is that? Well, he said, it's because Ronnie was somebody else with Charles that he was not with C.S. Lewis. That Charles brought out something in Ronnie that C.S. Lewis could never bring out in him. And he began to realize, and, and this is a very powerful statement that you and I have to grasp. We do not fully know ourselves until we know ourselves in community. But here's a bigger one. We do not really know Jesus until we know Jesus in community. In some ways, my view of Jesus and who Jesus is to me will never be fully informed until I know Sue's view or Butch's view or I know Kathy's view. And I begin, and look, I'm not talking about some weak ecumenicalism. I'm talking about being in friendship and community and connection with one another and, and the way Jesus is with you and the way he is with others. And you begin to see that it is in community that you have the fullest expression of the glory of God. There are things that my friends in Africa have seen of God that I never saw until I was with them. There were things that they never saw of God until I was there with them as well. They said, they said so. We said it to each other. My friend over in Africa, uh, I, I almost disagree with all of his theology. I'm just going to tell you right off, right off. I mean, it just, a lot of things came out of his mouth. I'm sitting there going, should I even be here? I mean, because he was kind of a prosperity guy, and, and he, he was into a, a kind of a stream of Pentecostalism that I'm not into, and, and, and all of that. And, and, you know, and I come from this really strict European, Reformed, Calvinistic background. He's, I don't know if he's ever heard of John Calvin or ever wants to. Okay, so we're, here we are together. And I could hear my old friends from seminary going, you're unclean because you're with that unclean guy. Because to them, see, theology is like meat. If you touch something unclean, you become unclean. Problem is, all of us have errors in our theology. None of us has it perfectly. All of us, you know, it's, we see in part, we know in part. Soon we will 
know all, but we, we only know part of it right now. But here, was the, here was the thing that was so beautiful to me, is that this wild, extremely Pentecostal, prosperity kind of guy loved me like a brother. And he let me, this kind of Presbyterian, sort of, you know, charismatic, kind of becoming certain things, he let me speak into him, and he called me wise. Where does that happen but in the church? And, you know, and there are things that he did that changed the way I do things forever. There are ways that he invited people to Jesus that I never saw more powerfully done than the way he did it. You know, he did this crazy thing with me one time. He was in the, you know, when people get in the midst of the anointing, sometimes crazy stuff comes out. He takes his sweaty jacket and he threw it over me and called it the sweaty jacket anointing. <laughs> Where I went to seminary, they never did that. There were sweaty jackets, but uh, there was no sweaty jacket anointing, you know. And, and you know what happened to this, this Presbyterian guy is suddenly he got an anointing he didn't have before. You know, and there's stuff that, that I gave to him, and he, he'd have to tell you, but there are things that I poured into his life and into his people that are still happening five, six years later. See, something, something has to go on in our lives where we're able to see, I don't know it all, you don't know it all, but when we come together, we know more. We know more. And instead of judging, instead of, instead of saying, I, I, you make me unclean, you actually make me full. You make me complete. Well, there's a, a kind of a counterfeit solution that many of us in America go for. We, we tend to, we tend to you know, segregate into the narrow-minded and the broad-minded. You know, the narrow-minded, you can kind of see that there's an issue here where there's only one possible solution. Your culture your way of doing it, all of that kind of thing, that only one possible solution. That just doesn't work, and Paul actually calls that the weak position. And so a lot of, a lot of times what people do is they think, that, well, let me get more sophisticated. I'll have this kind of broad-mindedness. And here's the problem with broad-mindedness. It's the idea no one has the true solution. It's that, or the idea everything's true. Like one of the issues that growing up in the Presbyterian church as, as the Presbyterian church drifted from the scriptures, and one of the things they said is, you know, all creeds are true. Well, when you say that, really what you're saying is nothing is true and nothing can be counted on because not all creeds say the same thing. And so there's, a, there's, this, there's this, this counterfeit thing where we start saying, let me just be broad-minded, live and let live. Well, Actually, if you look at all of what Paul's saying, he, he actually criticizes those who think themselves broad-minded. I mean, he, look, you can't miss, he calls anybody who's uptight and unable to get along and who says their way is the only way, he calls them weak. You can't get away from that. All the legalists, all the, you know, the, that kind of fundamental beat you up with my way or no other way. I went to this play one time. It was a Christmas play. I was forced to go because of a relationship with some people. I didn't want to go because it was at this really nasty kind of Baptist church. And, uh, and it was a four-hour-long Christmas play. It started at creation and ended at the Great White Throne Judgment. There wasn't a lot of Christmas in it. 
But, but it's so narrow-minded that the people who went to heaven were those who had, were boys who had khakis and short hair, girls who wore dresses, and who had never listened to rock and roll music. The ones who went to hell were the opposite. This is a real, I mean, this was their whole view. I mean, to understand what we're talking about, narrow-mindedness and weakness, and they would think themselves strong, but Paul says that's weak. Anytime you have to manipulate people, anytime you have to persuade them with intimidation, it's weak. At the end, I was so upset and I wanted to get out. They put their strongest, biggest guys at the doors and wouldn't let people out. <laughs> Would have had to punch out a few Baptists to get out. I decided, okay, I can last a little bit longer because I wasn't sure I could take them. But uh, you look at this sometimes. You have to understand he's not. It's fascinating that some people want to stay in this weak, rule-oriented instead of a deeper life. But the broad mind, it's not the answer either. Verse 3 says, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. So if you have freedom, he says, you don't get to look down your nose at those who don't. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who does eat. Let's take this a little further. This is where huge controversy has gone on. Suppose there are those of us in this room and we believe it's okay to drink alcohol. And then there are those of us in this room who believe it's not okay to drink alcohol. Let's take it out of, you know, none of us are eating meat sacrificed to idols anymore. Not that we know of, you know. And we're, we're not, that's not our big moral issue, but our big moral issue might be drinking. And so what he's saying here is, let's, there are those who have a freedom. He says, don't you look down like you're more sophisticated, you're better than those who have all these rules. And then he says, those of you who have all these rules, don't you take those rules and judge your brother with those rules. Because if God has accepted him, you don't get to reject him. Because what matters isn't your rejection. Because yours is temporary. And God's acceptance is forever. Well... This is, you know, there's another re- reason why this kind of every, everyone has the truth or no one has the truth or this kind of, this is actually this kind of, it's a very white European relativistic cultural expression. You don't see that in any other parts of the world. Everywhere else in the world, just other than India maybe. But in most parts of the world, people say it's either or. I have yet to see a bank use relativism. I would love it if my bank would say, if I said to him, I have a million dollars. Okay. If you believe you do, then you do, kind of a thing. (laughs) They wouldn't be in business for very long because it just doesn't work in a sense. And then the other aspect of this is kind of funny. Why this isn't a good solution is when you're intolerant of intolerance, you become intolerant. Because you've, you've said the one thing you can't stand is intolerance. But by not standing intolerance, you become intolerant. And it's kind of disingenuous. Because if you ever notice that the words like bigoted, those are very powerful words. Those are very painful words. And when you have some conviction of a certain truth, all someone has to do is say, well, you're bigoted. Well, they're saying, I'm intolerant of your intolerance. And so that doesn't work. 
All right, so what does work? Can you stay with me in this? Well, Paul's really calling us to a very different approach than tolerance. This is what we would call the biblical approach to community. See, the world says make no negative evaluations, but at the same time that it's saying don't make any negative evaluations, it's also saying I'm not going to let anything you believe affect me. Okay, that is the biggest thing in our culture. If you really look at what's going on, here's what's being said. You can believe anything you want, just don't let it affect me. Make sure that whatever you believe is not in any way imposing anything on my life. So what happens when you do that is there is no real interaction. Because you have to keep your beliefs over here, and I'll keep mine over there, but just don't let yours affect me. Well, Paul really says, let's, let's go at this completely opposite. Here's the first thing he says is sometimes you got to make negative evaluations. There are positions that are weak and there are positions that are strong. And it would make sense to me, at least if, if you're thinking in a, a sort of a rational way here, I would rather be in the strong position rather than the weak position. All right, now I'm not sure you're tracking with me, so I'm going to get you to say this just once to see if it works for you. I would rather be, would rather be in the strong position, in the strong position. Than, in the than in the weak position. I'm not sure. Some people love the weak position because it tells them exactly how to live. It controls everything, controls their thoughts, their actions, and then they can feel superior because they've measured up. Because the strong position is actually a great deal of freedom where you're not under law anymore, but under grace. You're beginning to live out of the heart rather than out of the motivations of the will. Instead of being afraid of consequences, you're beginning to live because you're loved. You see, the weak always have a weak understanding of the gospel. The strong always have a strong understanding of the gospel. So Paul says... In order for us to live biblically, we have to live realistically. There has to be a sober judgment of where you are. If you're not free, then you're weak. And then he says, if you're strong, you have to accept. Now this, for some of us, it goes, well, how is that different from tolerance? Well, the word accept means something very different. Look, look, Look at this definition. It means to draw a person in to adjust your life, to accept someone who is different from you. Verse 20 kind of illustrates this. says, don't make them stumble. And in order to not make someone else stumble, you have to make adjustments to deepen a relationship with someone who is different from you. So let's just think through this again. If I accept you, I'm not just tolerating you. I'm drawing you into my life. And I will make adjustments so that you can be there. If something I'm doing makes you uncomfortable, I'll stop doing it. If something I'm saying is not, you know, is not helping us get forward in our relationship, I'll stop saying it. Because the most important thing to me is not to be right, but to be with you. To listen to you, to hear you, to love you. See, in some ways, what's happening with the broad-mindedness and tolerance in our in our, 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 our society is it's saying, okay, I'm not going to make any judgment of you, but I'm not going to allow you into my life. I will not adjust for you. 
you stay over there. And as long as you're over there, you're okay. I'm going to be over here. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul says, make, these, make good evaluations. See where people are at. See where you're at. See what's weak. See what's strong. But then knowing what's weak, even knowing the negatives, even knowing things that you've, you've overcome that they're still trying to overcome, and maybe even they're a little prickly and a little hard to deal with. He says, even so, accept them. In other words, don't just tolerate them. Open up your heart and your life to include them. Make the adjustments that are necessary. If you're hearing me, you and I all know we've sinned in this area. This is where we failed. We, we don't even have to think about it much. Why are there 10,000 denominations? Because the strong couldn't adjust to the weak. The weak will always be the weak. That's what Paul's saying. You can speak to them somewhat, but what he's saying is, your first step is not to prove they're wrong. Your first step is to adjust your life to include them. Is that not the scariest thing in the world? Well, he also says, bear with the one who is weak. We are, who are strong should bear the weak. Enter into the, and what he means by bear is this. He says it's basically entering into the attitudes of the weak to do what love would require, to come to a place where we see why they believe what they believe to come to a place of understanding. Now, I confess to you that this has been one of the weaknesses of my life. That what I train myself to do is to make myself understood and to make you understand me. But it was only about 20 years or so ago that I finally understood it wasn't my job to be understood. It was my job to understand. Watchman Nee is really a great writer. He has a great book on on being a servant of the Lord, and it it, it impacted me powerfully. And he said, the number one thing of the servant of the Lord is to listen. Obviously, he's not saying that kind of listening where you got half your brain over here. He's talking about that kind of listening where you actually hear what the person is saying and you you begin to respond to them in in an appropriate way you begin to realize that much of what we do is constantly trying to get other people to understand us instead of doing what we have total control over, and that is working to understand them. Think about it. Why do we hang out only with people who are just like us? Well, it's because it's easier. Be around those who support you. One of the things that people often say is, I like to be around people I don't have to explain myself to. I understand that. It's beautiful. I watch sometimes when couples marry across culture, across races, and what they don't realize a lot of times is that the culture and the background and the family and all of that stuff, there's a different music playing, even when the words might be the same. So that, so that in one culture, a word means this, but in another culture, it means that, and you say it, and you're not listening to the music behind it, and you think they said this, and really they said that. I can't tell you how many times. Of course, all you really have to do is have a man and a woman, and you have two different cultures, and you have two different languages, and as they say, you know, two different planets. And, uh, and so a lot, of, a lot of marriage counseling for me is just translation. <laughs> it's just, you know, I've, I've learned to speak woman a little bit. And... Uh, and it's starting to make sense to me. But, but, the, but you begin to understand 
that when you're mad, when you're prejudiced, when you're racist, when you're denying that you have these kind of grids and these hates and these value judgments and you deny that, then you're not seeing that you can't understand someone because the grid, their words are coming through are words that filter out what they're saying. It is so important for us to understand that the real solution is that we begin to say, okay, I've got cultural differences, but it is my job to understand, not to be understood. This is what Paul is teaching here. In a sense, we'll never know the fullness of who Jesus is until we hang out with each other. Now, the power to do this, Paul says, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Do you know why he has to put perseverance here? Because what we're talking about is not easy. It's not magic. It is supernatural, but it's not magic. In other words, if I'm going to really understand a friend who comes from another culture, who has another language, I'm going to have to learn what they mean by what they say, which means I'm going to have to persevere. And then sometimes what's going to happen is that as we get close to each other, we're going to hurt each other. I'm going to say something that's wrong, or you're going to say something that's wrong in the sight of each other. And then we're going to have to ask the question, can we overcome having differences? Do we have to only and always agree to be together? Or can we make adjustments? One of, the, one of the biggest things in my marriage that I think has really been so healing to me is that Lisa almost never agrees with me. Okay, it's very, it's very rare that she just quickly agrees with me. And it, it took me forever to realize that it... She was not disagreeing with me. She was seeing something I wasn't seeing that was important to the final decision. But we would get into these fights because I would say, you know, it's my way, I'm right. She'd say no. Now, her thing is she doesn't fight with me. She just doesn't change her mind. Like no matter how many arguments I give to her, uh, this is the way it is. I, I try to be the irresistible force but she is always the immovable object. (laughs) So, I mean, after a while, you just go, you know, all my ability to persuade is lost on this woman. But here's, here's what was so healing to me. Even when she stayed where she was, and even though we had conflict and she didn't like how persuasive I was trying to be, she never stopped loving me. And when I asked her to forgive if I said something wrong, she forgave. And she renewed intimacy with me and friendship with me and love with me and all of these things. There is something incredibly expanding and healing about the fact that you can disagree with somebody and still be loved afterwards. Or you can have a conflict and you're still okay. There's something incredibly enlarging about that. But there's a sense in which if we never get close, we never have conflict. But then we're never close. We're never one. Our future is together. You look around this room, these are the people you're going to be spending eternity with. Some of you are like, oh, God. (laughs) So what we're saying 
you know, in the kingdom of God, we will be and we are one people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just skip to this last part. Think about this with me, and this is, this is why I believe, I believe this is the theological basis, the biblical basis of what I'm talking about today. If you know that because of Jesus' work on the cross, if you, if you know that because of Jesus' work on the cross, you're accepted, you're loved, then you know that uh, you have no ground to look down on anybody else. Because if, if it's the cross, then it's not because you're smart, it's not because of your culture, not because of your parents, not because of your language. If your acceptance with God is simply because of the cross, then there's no one else that we can look down on and say you're not worthy or you're unworthy in some way. Well, how, how does the cross speak to this? Well, it's very simple. The cross itself is Jesus' negative evaluation of me. He, going to the cross, he is criticizing my life because he's saying I'm not enough. He's saying I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. Do you understand what I'm saying? To me, this is very powerful when I got this. Then, he's adjusting his life to make space for me. Right? To accept me when I'm unacceptable. And if he did that for me, how can I not do that for others? And then I, I, I leave it with this part. Only together can we really know him. Does this make sense to you? As I started to see this, it just started hitting me very powerfully. You know, this thing about in one town, one culture was really smart, and in another town, the same culture was dumb. You know, being together, they, they, they filled out what was missing. But being apart, one would have stayed dumb for the rest of their lives. This part about, hey, Jesus had to negatively evaluate me to go to the cross. But in doing so, he adjusted his life so he could have space for me. How can I not do that for every other group of people and for all people? Well, the, the action point for today is really this. You're busy people. We know that. But you're not going to get close to anybody in this room unless we break it into smaller groups. And we do this intentionally. We don't get clicks going. We don't have life groups that last forever. We do them for a semester. And we ask you to come together for as much of the 10 weeks as you possibly can and, and to take off the mask and to take off, you know, whatever else and let people see who you are. And then seeing who you are, they'll understand you. Instead of being a crowd, we'll, become, we'll, we'll actually become a family. You know, it's not going to happen because we think it's a cool thing to happen. It's only going to happen if we do something about it. So this is why we do this every, every fall and every spring as we start pulling people together and saying, hey, we want to know you. We want to be known by you. If you take this thing out, uh, we're going to pass around baskets here. And uh, we're going to take up uh, your, your preference of which one you might... Ryan told you to get ready for this. And of course, to be a part of us, you don't have to come to one of these, but it will make such a difference in, in your life if you do. So we're going we're gonna to pick these up. We're just going to have you sit there. Any of you need pens? We have pens. We'd like you to be a part of a group. We're going to have a... Wednesdays are 
kind of a unique group where we're going to have a large group of people come together on Wednesday night. Lisa and I and Gabe are leading that time. It's going to be about praying through the things in your life that are struggles. We're doing this thing over the thing uh, over the the fall called the Circle Makers, a, a part of what we're doing. We're going to be drawing circles around the big issues in our life. We're going to be praying through them. And your brothers and your sisters are going to come together and pray with you over the circles of your life. 